This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. And you know what I'm thankful for? Was that books and friends? And that's what we're here to do every week: is talk Those about our good. books and talk about our friends. I am not thankful for friends because to have friends would be too much like collectivism, and I hate that now. <laughs> It would be too much like getting a group of people together to do anything, and so I hate it now. Oh, so you are thankful for only your ideas forever? I'm thankful for th- the ideas of anyone who stands up and thinks for him or herself, but mostly himself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I- but yeah, particularly me. Well, I am I am a genius and I must be allowed to practice my art. Well, which great. Is podcasting. Great. Um so on this podcast, if you do a bad podcast, I will blow it up with dynamite <laughs> to preserve my artistic vision. Well, me and the unwashed hordes, we have formed a podcast collective to balance out your podcaster of high ideals and ideas uh for this episode. <laughs> um they will all be silent behind me because I too am a great man with great ideas secretly and uh, I will mm. rise above them. Um mm. so every week on the show we talk about a book that one of us usually hasn't read before, but for this month we've read a few books in remember November that we have read before. So Andrew, what book did you read? Uh and I'm just realizing that if you come into this not knowing this, that previous run is going to sound pretty weird. But I read yeah. The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. <laughs> So all of uh, what you will now know for sure is a bunch of goofs um, were informed by the book that we discussed this week. And what we do, if you haven't listened to the show before, is one of us tells the other one about the book. We usually have not both read it for the episode, so I have not read it. And Andrew's going to tell me what happens in it and what he thinks about it. And I'm going to react because we have to fill an hour. And that's how it goes. We sure do. Um, this was a Patreon recommendation from Allegra. Thank you, Allegra. If you want to make Patreon recommendations, go to patreon.com slash pod for more information. But, Andrew, you had read this book before. When? I had read this book before. Now, did before we get started, did Allegra have a note that went with the Oh, request? yes. I have it here to okay, hand. I would like to frame the discussion with that. Oh, yes, this was, okay, mistakenly, uh, it was initially sent in about Atlas Shrugged, and then Allegra wrote back and said, no, I actually meant Fountainhead, sorry. Um, I read this many years ago and really enjoyed it, but was too young to pick up on any of the subtext. For me at the time, it was just a well-written book about an architect. I'd like to revisit it, especially in this political climate, but I'm hesitant to be seen reading an Ayn Rand book. Care to take <laughs> on the challenge? I think you would have a really interesting discussion. That was it. That's all. Yeah. So, um, where to start? Um, I guess we should start not with why 
and when I read this book the first time, because I think that that'll come up organically a bit later. Um, let's talk about why somebody would be hesitant to be seen reading Ayn Rand. <laughs> um, even though uh, Ayn Rand, who was uh, a Russian-American author who immigrated over here sort of after the communist revolution, yeah? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, she has sort of founded, and it's been carried on by a few people, this this uh philosophical movement i guess called objectivism which is all about like only what you can see with your eyes is real like there is no such thing as like gut feeling or higher power or like gods or any of that um the four pillars from the ayn rand website are (laughs) reality reason self-interest and capitalism and those things kind of function in relationship to each other and sort of one leads to the other if you follow her train of thought mm-hmm. um, and and the logic of objectivism. And so I think am- among philosophers, I don't think her ideas found a lot of purchase. And, and they're, part of that is because I think people sort of found some of the stuff that she was saying derivative of um, Nietzsche and some others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but one place where her ideas, particularly the self-interest and capitalism bits of the ideology have really taken root is in American conservatism. I mean, she was a big booster of like Barry Goldwater's 1964 campaign and you can trace a line straight through, you know, from that to like the Reagan presidency and all the way through to uh, like the Paul Ryan and like Obama era Republican Party, and then of course to now, yeah, yeah. Um, with some and with some in- inherent contradictions, some inherent contradictions which we can talk about a bit too. And and there's a reason why those two pillars are are I, I mentioned them specifically, but but it's it it is filtered down to now and to our current politics as this belief that. People should be free to do whatever they want. And by people, they mostly mean businessmen because the free market is the best way to solve any and all problems. And because uh, markets are populated by rational actors who only act in their self-interest and can be counted upon to act in their self-interest, it is a self-policing system and the government should get out of it and not tell anybody what to do. Yes, it, it is a worldview that puts all human activity through the lens of the market, essentially, because it is the best way to ensure that you act in your own self-interest and that your own self your ability to act in your own self-interest is protected. Um, there's something here under the capitalism page of the Ayn Rand site that says the ideal social system is laissez-faire capitalism, um, and advocates for a, quote, complete separation of state and economics in the same way and for the same reasons as the separation of state and church. So again, like, if you need a frame of reference, I think that actually distills, like, a good part of the of the worldview, is that, like, human action and your ability to to take it should be separate from what the state can and cannot do to and for you, is the belief. She took some positions that are sort of a counter to modern American conservatism, but I do think they're compatible with a version of libertarianism that is just about the government not 
being involved. Yeah. What you can and can't do. Like she was fine with abortion. She did not like homosexuality, but she did say that there shouldn't be laws about it. Yes. Yes. Um, and there, there are a couple other things, but, but just, yeah, things that, because the, uh, the like evangelical block is so influential in modern conservatism. Those bits don't get imported along with the, the like free market capitalism. Yeah. Bits. There, there are like Reagan on very, or even Nixon on very like political reasons to align this type of conservatism with social conservatism um social meaning like on social issues and civil rights and things like that not not economic issues Mm -hmm. um and yeah so if you actually like tried to get into a conversation with her about that she'd probably like get angry at you for all of the like big government things that your ostensibly small government party is doing Mm -hmm. um there were like there were some like i found on snopes an article about how when she had like retired um she actually like took like social security payments when she was older and like made yeah, it out of the Yeah, I read that she Medicare. was not she was not like thrilled about that, but she did do it. And the and the Snopes article was hilarious because it went back and like found a a Randian justification for it as like taking back what the welfare state had stolen from you, which is I couldn't even, but that's, that's where it was. That is ugh, that that is where people who have these really strong and strident beliefs really lose me is not when they, when they later do something that runs counter to their earlier beliefs. You know, we all, everybody's views change over time. It's a perfectly natural and healthy thing to do. But when you start saying, no, actually this is fully compatible with the values that I have been espousing for my entire (laughs) life. And here's why that's where, it's like, well, how intellectually honest is is this entire thing? <laughs> so that's a good primer, like very top level primer on objectivism, Andrew. Thank you. I want to do like a quick sketch of Rand and a little bit of her CV, and then we'll get into the book and then hit whatever else comes up. Sure. Well, real, just real quickly, yeah. I, I wanted to do that thing about conservatism first, both because of Allegra's oh, sure. note, but also it, that gets to why I read the book. Oh, is, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's it's adherent. There there are several waves. There's uh, of Randian adherence. Uh, there's this really great article in the Guardian by Jonathan Friedland, published in uh, April of 2017, about like different phases of, of the movement and different followers. But um, just to give you a sense of like how influential this is in American politics, like Alan Greenspan, who ran the Fed for like t- two decades. Uh, was a very close friend of Ayn Rand's and was at her funeral in 1982. He fell um, into he fell into the salon group that had kind of formed around her as she was writing Atlas Shrugged, right? So this book comes out in 43. It is successful. And then she builds on that success and is like, then starts making objectivism hand in hand with these people who are like, these are good ideas. And Greenspan yeah. is one of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you get to um, Paul Ryan, who was Speaker of the House up until uh, early this year, and then he stopped being Speaker of the House for some reason. I don't remember why. <laughs> um, but he he infamously gave out copies of Atlas Shrugged as like Christmas presents to staffers. Yes, and yes. Um, and one of the reasons why I think this this 
viewpoint and like Rand's works in particular captured young people is because they really aggressively like the Ayn Rand Foundation or whatever uh, organization this is really aggressively um, goes after kids in particular like like there is this long-standing essay contest that they've been running yes and that is why i read the fountainhead originally is because they've been doing this essay contest for how many years has it been since i was in high school like for many decades this is 16 years ago for me that i was reading this um but there's a shorter book called anthem that she wrote um that is offering uh, cash prizes to 8th, 9th, and 10th graders who read it and then write an essay. The Fountainhead is for 11th and 12th graders. And then Atlas Shrugged is for 12th graders and then uh, college students, yeah, yeah. Um, both undergrad and graduate students. And so it's really, it's it, they, they, are, they are making this concerted effort to introduce these works to people at a time in a lot of people's lives where you are like forming core political beliefs and you are i mean you're just trying to make sense of this world that you now have to be an adult in so i have and these, I, and these I, books are very they are nothing if not confident like they, they yeah, present sure. a fairly uncomplicated view of what is right and wrong in a way that i think is appealing to people who just are trying to trying to understand the world around them. There's you know? an article that I want I'll return to later when we get to a certain scene in the book, but there was a Washington City paper article from I think 2010 that interviewed the creator of the Atlas Sphere, a social networking website for objectivists. And uh, the guy Joshua Zader said it's not unusual or it happens at all ages but i think it does happen more commonly among young people this is when people get into rand her books appeal to youthful idealism to people who are at the point in their lives when they're trying to figure out what's important and i think we'll talk in this book about the what i think and you'll correct me if i'm wrong is like what it is to like stake out an ideological view and feel like you're right and then the world you have to confront a world that is and is not welcoming of that and like that's mm -hmm. a thing that teenagers do every day and <laughs> then what rand is doing is like taking that basic human interaction and like making the stakes very very high um mm -hmm. can i do a quick bio sketch and then we'll get in the book andrew yeah yeah of Great. course. i want to make sure we don't miss that part um, yeah that's fine i know i just wanted i wanted to i know that's pretty like u.s politics heavy and in particular I think that's uh, why for, she's for popular, people, though. But, yeah, yeah, but but like, yeah, I wanted to provide that background and and why you have probably heard about Ayn Rand before. <laughs> yeah, and why she's become both a a she's it's her name has become idiomatic. Like it is, it's a punchline on The Simpsons just to say Ayn Rand. Uh, like <laughs> you know, well, like people talk about Randian viewpoints yeah. a lot, and this yeah. is what this is what they're talking about. It's not just people being Randy; it's all about <laughs> Ayn Rand. <laughs> okay, let's get Randy. Um, Elisa Zinovievna Rosenbaum, uh, Ayn Rand, was born in 1905, died in 1982. As you said before, lived in Saint Petersburg. Uh, her family fled after the October Revolution. Um, she did go to college. Was purged from college after like a bunch of people, like students, were not allowed to finish, and then later were. I don't really understand that part of history enough. Um, and around that time is when she chose her pen name, Ayn Rand. Um, there's some dispute over what the sources were. I uh, Rand, perhaps being from uh, how one of her names 
appeared in Cyrillic and then Ein either being a Finnish or a Hebrew word. Um, they moved to the U.S. Uh, in 1926, or she did rather, um, got involved in American film, wrote, writing screenplays, wrote some plays that got produced in the 30s. When I look at the character list of this book, I definitely see a playwright in the the like the relationships and how uh, clearly the conflicts are drawn. So I'll be interested to hear about that. Yeah, there's there's an afterword uh, written by this guy Leonard Peikoff, who is the person to whom she like entrusted the objectivist movement uh, after she died. Um, and he includes a bunch of her notes about about writing the book because she wrote it over the over a period of like five years and it was rejected by a bunch of publishers before it was finally published. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she she sketches the characters out in a sort of dramatis personae mm. fashion. Sure, sure. Where they are really like their their core beings are like sketched out really early on, and there is not a lot of like characters do have arcs, but characters are also like themselves the whole way yeah like sure. she she has decided what each character represents and that is borne out through this entire brick of a book <laughs> okay cool um so her first novel is called we the living which is semi-autobiographical about living in soviet russia anthem which you mentioned is about like a dystopian future of totalitarian collectivism cool 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 um, then she got really politically active in the 40s. She volunteered for the Wendell Wilkie campaign, um, who ran against FDR in 1940. He was like the only interventionist Republican candidate, um, huh. which is interesting. And he kind of solved, he like helped them either came out of the convention or like solved them from having a brokered convention or something. Anyway, she fell in with a lot of Republicans and intellectuals that were excited about the free market capitalism we've been talking about. Um, and then she wrote this in, in 1943, even though she'd been working on it for at least seven years. Apparently took a bunch of Benzedrine to finish the book because she was on deadline. Whomst uh, among us. Whomst <laughs> among us. We've been college students. Um, they did make an adaptation of the book into a film. Like she wrote the screenplay um, not very recently after it was written. Um, after it was published, it was rather. like 45, right? Yeah, she apparently disliked that film. And I read an article the other day that Zack Snyder is working on a new adaptation, released the Snyder cut of The Fountainhead. Um, <laughs> she did you see get... the early renders of Ayn Rand and how weird her teeth look? <laughs> but I'm so excited to see Jim Carrey play Howard Rourke. Oh, my God. <laughs> They're going to have to CG out his mustache. Um, she got involved in the... Uh, like all of the Hollywood anti-communist stuff. She was a friendly witness for the House Un-American Activities Committee. Um, for me, it was just interesting to know that she got involved in politics during FD the era of FDR and the beginning of what we now think of as like, and I don't mean this pejoratively, but the welfare state, like a government who used its own powers to like lift the economy out of the depression by well, providing uh, yeah, things a, for a people a government that saw a system that had been broken in yes. fact by like capitalism run yes. amok and a lack of like concern for workers now to be fair to ayn rand like i think it is important a bold statement to, i know right but I, I think it is important to understand where her like lived experience yes, comes into her completely. like formulating this viewpoint because she at like age 12 or something sees the communist party like literally come into her house and take stuff. Yeah, completely. 
because because the state has decided you know we we know what is best for everybody and we are going to like radically redistribute wealth and possessions to make sure that everybody has the same thing and on paper that can be an interesting idea but in practice so many um socialist and communist governments have have just been corrupt and they also do bad stuff <laughs> like, yeah that's fair like when, when, once the rubber has hit the road those those governments have not have not done great um so she's i mean she's thinking specifically about like soviet style communism and then also what is happening around this time in nazi germany yeah fair where they're saying like for the good of the race we need to do yes you know several yes. atrocities so. you can you can see where the anti-statist belief system comes from and then it gets kind of married and or expressed through a pro-capitalist viewpoint perhaps pro-capitalism and then pro-america we can we can read i don't know if you want me to get into this later if we should just do it now like there's a point very toward the end where suddenly it becomes about america the country oh no really in a way that um in a way that is not surprisingly like sort of uh jingoistic or well just just very uh (laughs) here i'll just i'll just uh here we go reader judge for yourself reader judge for yourself uh now observe the results of a society built on the principle of individualism. This, our country, the noblest country in the history of men, the country of greatest achievement, greatest prosperity, greatest freedom. This country was not based on selfless service, sacrifice, renunciation, or any precept of altruism. It was based on a man's right to the pursuit of happiness, his own happiness, not anyone else's, a private, personal, selfish motive. Look at the results. Look into your own conscience. And listen, I know that this is what America aspires to but to frame the creation of america that way while also not talking about stuff like i don't know slavery or indigenous people yeah seems like not ideal can i also yeah can i also oh (laughs) so not only is it like we this country was built on sin but also um we the people is a that's a pretty important American phrase, not I the man or mm-hmm. I the woman to start a government. I gover- mean, have you seen John Hancock's signature? <laughs> it's, it's pretty big. It's pretty big. Tell me that guy's not thinking about individualism. Fair enough. Um, all the iTunes reviewers are going to get really mad about this. I know. So I do want to get into the into the recap because people, I personally am very interested to know what is in this book. Um, but let's quickly just say that Atlas Shrugged comes out in 1957, um, which is about when a bunch of artists and intellectuals leave a welfare state and things go haywire. And it's about like what happens if all of the people who practice objectivism like rise up essentially Um, a book I have not read. So I'm sure. And I think there are some, that book was less well received critically, but I think has gone on to have, as you said, like Paul Ryan was handing out copies of that book because it was a little bit more, even than this book, a codified version of the philosophy. Um, but let's talk about the Fountainhead and what who is in it and what happens so that we can know in case anyone asks us later. Okay, so the Fountainhead is a really long book that <laughs> takes place um, mostly in the 1920s and 30s. So we are talking like 
pre-Great Depression into the Depression and then getting into World War II a little bit. Okay. Though the stuff that that mostly serves as a backdrop to what is happening. Like the book is at, at no point is anyone in this book like sent off to war or, or whatever. Okay, sure. Um, okay. Or, Good or to know. is anybody like talking about Hitler explicitly or, or anything like that? Okay. Um, even though it's being written kind of after the fact. Howard Rourke and Peter Keating are two students attending the Stanton Institute of Technology. Uh, Stanton Institute is not a real institution. It is a fictionalized MIT, or it's thought to be. Howard has attended for three years, but is being expelled. And Peter is graduating at the top of his class and has his pick of several like plum career opportunities to let go and... Sounds pursue. good. Sounds good for um, him. Howard is is being thrown out basically because he refuses to conform. I mean, this is you're getting this from right off like right off the bat. Like Howard Rourke is a modernist architect. Okay. And what is being preached and practiced at this school is more of a like it harkens back to classical architecture, Renaissance architecture, just basically columns everywhere. Just think of (laughs) Howard Rourke hates columns so bad. And he's always complaining about people putting columns on buildings, even though they're not holding up anything. (laughs) And can we really, can we just get past the Parthenon and like do some new stuff? Okay, cool. And this, this scandalizes the, the college elders. And so they throw him out on his butt. Okay. Uh, but uh, Howard is is boarding with Peter and Peter's mom, and so they like know each other and talk sometimes, and and Peter is he respects Howard and thinks he does good work, but like thinks he should just go along to get along a little bit more. And Howard thinks that Peter does not completely terrible work when he is not just like copying stuff that has been done by others in the past. Like that's sure. the, that's the core thing is like Peter is a borrower of ideas and society rewards him for that. Howard is an individualist who has his own ideas and wants to go his own way and society punishes him accordingly. Yeah. That's that classic, uh, you know, odd couple set up. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so, the book is split up into parts based on like the individual characters. So the first, the first bit of it focuses primarily on Keating and his work. Um, and then it focuses on this guy named Ellsworth Tui, who is a, a socialist and humanist who serves as the book's main antagonist. What does, um, does does what does he do? Is he like a he's a he's like a newspaper columnist, and you know, people really respect his opinion and come and seek him out. And eventually, like he becomes sort of a kingmaker, and mm. he uses this power as a kingmaker to elevate mediocrity, like mediocre plays, mediocre architecture, and mediocre everything, and try and make it so that the public cannot distinguish great work from mediocre work oh, and in no. so doing make everybody equal oh boy and everything is average does he um, does he express it that way or is that you getting he sure, to <laughs> i mean he is oblique about it at the start but by the la- by the time you get into the last fifth of this book everybody's just doing these 
like Incredibles villain monologues about all of their motivation. Like it, Ayn Rand wrote this and she wrote Atlas Shrugged and she wrote some other works of fiction as well. But like after Atlas Shrugged, she mostly was like, okay, I'm done with fiction. I'm just going to write books of about my political beliefs now. And you can, I think you could see she, she did do pretty, a lot of research on, on architecture mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, as part of the writing process for this book. Like there is a, an earnest, honest attempt at, at making it accurate and making it be about that. But it also is so totally not about that. Like it is about this, these viewpoints of hers using architecture as kind of a proxy. Yeah. One of Um, the, there, there were two contemporaneous New York times reviews. One that loved, (laughs) one that loved the book and one that hated the book. And the one that loved it said, uh, she has written a hymn in praise of the individual and has said things worth saying in these days. And then the negative one was like, this isn't a very good book about architecture. <laughs> there is no denying <laughs> that's, that's the vigor, Elon, and general enthusiasm that have gone into the making of this book. The performance is amazing, but like that of a contortionist or a human cannonball, it entertains without making good any sound claims to being art. To take all the strange goings on in the Fountainhead seriously uh, be difficult indeed. And it does de- it does praise the depiction of architecture, or at least the feeling for architecture, which probably came out of the research. And also, there's like some anecdotes about her coming to Manhattan from Russia and being yeah. like, "Dang, look what people made sure. in like but that the that, that review and stuff." That review also gets at like some of the characterization problems. Like so often, characters in this book are just like viewpoints talking. Sounds like at it. each other a little bit, and characters act really strangely without like clear motive a lot of the time. Um, so you'd gotten so to Tui, yeah. So uh, and then there is this uh, newspaper magnate called Gail Wynand who cool. rose up from nothing in hell's kitchen and now runs this i guess think of it as kind of a new york posty sort of paper oh, it's, it's very popular and it's very it, it is very it's always chasing the trends like there, there's this anecdote where like very early on when he was running this paper uh wine and ran like a contest like trying to get people to donate either to this like scientist who was trying to do good work or like this unwed mother who had a had a like a sob story basically and like people donated nine bucks to the scientists and like thousands of dollars to the to the unwed mother with the sob story. Huh. So he's he's kinda of, he's chasing all this um stuff that is sort of portrayed as cheap human interest stuff. Okay. And also his his hobby is to find people who are doing exceptional work and like prove that they can be bought, basically. Oh neat. That's cool. Um, yeah, that's super cool. Um, there is a woman named Dominique Franken, who is the daughter of Guy Franken, who is the guy who runs the firm that Peter Keating goes to work at. Okay, with his we'll cushy, to, great job. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll get back to Keating in a bit, I guess. Um, and she works at the Banner. She writes a column that's mostly about like architecture criticism, and she... It, it all the characters in this book exist kind of on a spectrum 
where on the one hand you have the individualists and on the other hand you have what she starts referring to toward the end as the second handers, people who can only yeah. thrive on the work and effort and inventions of others. The, the working so, title of the book was Secondhand Lives, which was yeah. a, a thing that she coined. Yeah. So the, the, the people like Howard Work, of, of course, is the ideal individualist, never wavers, never never doubts his own rightness. Mm-hmm. And then other people like Dominique is in the individualist camp. Wynand actually is in the individualist camp. Like though both of these characters have flaws that keep them from being as idealized as work. And then like Tui is according to her notes. And I thought this was an interesting way of putting it. Tui is a second hander who knows he's a second hander and acts accordingly. Keating is a second hander who doesn't know yeah. that that's what he's doing. This is just a D&D alignment chart. <laughs> a little bit. Can we make like a super libertarian <laughs> D&D that's all based on like Randian precepts? I'm no, I'm worried about the parts of D&D that already are. Like I'm I know they're in there. Like which gods in the pantheon are Randian devotees? I don't mm-hmm. really want to think about it. Paladins are not. Paladins are. Not. <laughs> so those, paladin. those are the those are the four main characters, and you get like references to each of them. Is that four or five? People? That's five. That's five. Howard, five people. Yeah, Howard. Well, don't count Rourke because he's an ideal man. He's, he's above kind of the rest. A force of nature, I yes. guess. But then you get these people who <laughs> are defined relative to Howard and those are the other four people who you spend a lot of the book I did make some notes briefly on like where these characters came from and again this kind of gets back to her being originally a playwright by trade I'm kind of I didn't know that going into this episode that's kind of neat um so Rourke is the ideal man and in her notes and in the scholarship on the work that he is at least partially inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright um and not by necessarily Wright the man but by right as like his career and his symbolism as this uncompromising modernist. Um, Mm. He, (laughs) there's a quote um, from that, that a biographer of Wright had when asked about his difference between him and Rourke saying, I deny the paternity and refuse to marry the mother is what Wright had to say <laughs> oh, no. about Howard Rourke. Oh, no. <laughs> it's pretty great. Um, <laughs> Peter Keening apparently is not based on any single person, but Rand did uh, like tell a story about a neighbor she had who like only wanted things so that she could have social standing over her o- over like other people that she knew. Yeah. Um Tui like was he- yeah, uh, Keating finds his worth in the like reflected praise of of other sure. people. Sure, yeah, essentially, um, and there there is nothing in him without that. He is he is no person, mm. literally. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, uh, Tui was inspired primarily by a British democratic socialist named Harold Lasky, um, who was involved in, I guess that's Churchill's government. Um, was part of the Labor Party, even though he wound up getting disavowed by the Labor Party for being too Marxist. Uh, she went to lectures that Lasky gave as like research for Tui. Okay. Um, Wynand is a riff on William Randolph Hearst to yeah, a certain extent. Yeah, I figured he was Hearstian, yeah. Um, and she 
in some of the notes, it talks about him being kind of Nietzschean and having a like the Nietzschean like need to dominate philosophy. Like you are either in charge or you are subjugated. Um, yeah. which so is, his his deal, like relative to that in the book, is um, he is he is basically the closest any other character gets to being Howard to the point where once those characters finally meet like two thirds or so of the way through the book, they are finishing each other's sentences a little bit. Huh? And it's, it's very, it's almost romantic, almost Uh like their, their affection for each other. But, uh, Winans like a central essential mistake is he believes through his papers that he, influences public opinion but when he decides to start championing Rourke in this specific legal case that we'll talk about um he discovers that like as long as he was giving people what they wanted to read he was popular with people sure and then as soon as he stopped doing that his power to influence public opinion dries up pretty quickly because he's just he is a close follower of it he can see trends and he's very good at that end of it but he is not he's not creating yeah stuff like he thinks he is um yeah i think some of her notes she had like originally planned to have a bunch of nietzsche quotes in this book they're they're not in the book right they're not like nietzsche quotes at the beginning of each section i i could not no, I think like a, I mean like on the like section two. Here's a quote oh, from Nietzsche. No, 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 no. no. no I think that. that was in drafts when she was like working through her relationship to Nietzsche, Nietzschean philosophy, and ultimately found it wanting, and then like put it through this dude. Um, and then Franken uh, is not based on a specific Dominique. Yes, Dominique um, is not based on a specific person. Rand said it was uh, she was similar to herself in a bad mood. Um, I'm not quite sure what that means, but she also said in the notes that I read that she's oh, yeah. like the ideal woman for Howard Rourke. Yeah, she is defined as wanting the ideal man, and all that I read about mm-hmm. her, which, which, yeah. and like wants the ideal man, believes in the ideal man, but ultimately believes that he will lose because the world cannot handle him or will tear him down. Yes, right. Okay, which basically sounds like these things are just things the characters say later in the book. <laughs> This isn't not, it isn't not what they just out and say. Like, Dominique is, oh, man, okay, all right. Do we need some plot set up to get to Dominique? I feel like, okay, so the the first part of the book is tracing the, like, twin career paths of Howard Rourke and Peter Keating. Makes sense. Peter Keating gets a good job at uh, Guy Franken's firm and through sort of manipulating people and occasionally letting Howard do his work for him because Howard can't see a job poorly done and just leave it. But he also doesn't want credit for it because he doesn't want anyone to know that he's associated with any of this architecture that he doesn't like. Okay. Um, he moves, Peter rises up really quickly through the ranks at this, at this place and eventually gets this really big commission and, becomes a partner at the at the firm and is just like doing really really well. Um Howard goes to work for this sort of disgrace past his prime modernist architect um named Henry Cameron. Um and there is very little work but Howard like the, the 
Cameron is the only architect who whose work Howard sort of admires. Okay. Um, because he was he is also sort of on this individualist end of the spectrum. Um, so Howard is just barely scraping by while Peter, sometimes with Howard's help, gets these huge commissions. And we're just seeing what the, like society values and what it does not. Okay. Um, Keating's rise and I th- I also think like Tui's ability to point out a, a shyster and like exploit that uh, brings Peter into Tui's orbit. Mm. At which point he becomes sort of sort of dependent on Tui. Like he he is a character who is he this is the way he's described in the book is like once you become like a friend of his and you have his like approval and you know that he thinks well of you because he's just such a big deal and such a swell guy that you like become addicted to that and like unable to function without it oh cool and it's like this disease of collectivism almost where you like become so wholly dependent on this other person for your sense of self-worth that even though Peter has flashes where he recognizes individualism and he knows like where he could have taken a different path. Like he, he ultimately always ends up subjugated to like the public or to Tui or to, you know. And so this isn't like working for other people or working on other people's behalf. It's working like own. It's not, it's working explicitly out of your own self interest and at, another person's like behest like it's different from like working to help people or to help someone right it's working because you like the praise they give you or the people they can connect you to yeah i mean Tui does make a lot of very explicit um speeches about charity and how like charity and altruism are like like doing good for others is in the worldview of the fountainhead like charity and, and altruism like people do those things not because they want to help but because they want to be seen helping well and that's not like i mean they, that is also a thing in in the actual world outside of the yeah, fountainhead. I mean, the, yeah yeah there's there's a whole like there was just a story going around uh, a couple days ago about like jeff bezos who has fought every tax hike that anybody has ever even whispered about within a hundred mile radius of him giving like some fraction of his billions and billions of dollars to like aid homelessness with a bunch of like preconditions and stuff attached to it and um that raises a bunch of questions about what happens when these individualists start to take over functions of the state and stuff that rand doesn't really get into nope <laughs> i don't know if she i don't know maybe she just didn't foresee things getting to the point where they are or i think that's maybe part it's of it convenient i don't know it, it sounds like there's just like unanswered qu- questions and that that those are the things that trip me up like if everyone's acting in their own self-interest like what about jerks like that's <laughs> just my, like i get that jerks can take over collectivists like systems too but if we're all just working on our own time, like what I feel like it is being disingenuous about the fact that we are actual social animals who have to exist in the world together mm-hmm. is my that's my immediate reaction. But maybe but this like, book could change my mind. I don't know. So here here is Rourke on 
charity and on on helping others. Men have been taught that their first concern is to relieve the suffering of others, but suffering is a disease. Should one come upon it, one tries to give relief and assistance. To make that the highest test of virtue is to make suffering the most important part of life. Then man must wish to see others suffer in order that he may be virtuous. Such is the nature of altruism. The creator is not concerned with disease, but with life. Yet the work of the creators has eliminated one form of disease after another in man's body and spirit and brought more relief from suffering than any altruist could ever conceive. So like there's the argument, I guess, for big pharma. I guess. Oh, my God. It's like capitalism has fixed more diseases than than charity and and collectivism ever could whoa no are you uh are you a libertarian now i don't know what i am this oh god and then here here is tui during his like multi-page like supervillain speech to peter keating (laughs) as he's like finally breaking him down into dust um Every system of ethics that preached sacrifice grew into a world power and ruled millions of men. Of course, you must dress it up. You must tell people that they'll achieve a superior kind of happiness by giving up everything that makes them happy. You don't have to be too clear about it. Use big, vague words. Universal harmony, eternal spirit, divine purpose, nirvana, paradise, racial supremacy, the dictatorship of the proletariat, internal corruption, Peter. That's the oldest one of all. The farce has been going on for centuries and men still fall for it yet the test should be so simple just listen to any prophet and if you hear him speak of sacrifice run run faster than from a plague it stands to reason that where there's sacrifice there's someone collecting sacrificial offerings where there's service there's someone being served the man who speaks to you of sacrifice speaks of slaves and masters and intends to be the master but if ever you hear a man telling you that you must be happy that it's your natural right that your first duty is to yourself that will be the man who's not after your soul Oh, no. That would be the man who has nothing to gain from you. Andrew, has our tagline been secretly Randian the whole time? Was that? Our, the end of the thing is try to be happy, just objectivist. No, it's not. It can't maybe. be. I oh, mean, maybe no. it is. Do with it what you will. <laughs> but that's that's those two passages are among the many passages where the like worldview of the fountainhead is distilled okay into into a couple of paragraphs and this it, is just talking talking a lot about how like the pursuit of of the self is the best thing anyone can do and so and th- there's always a gap though when you start to ask okay what happens when literally okay so this one person can exist in this system and be superior yes. to it because the system exists around them and yes. they can exist in opposition to it. But what does happen when literally everyone starts acting this way? So there, so the cover of the fountainhead of at least multiple editions is a man dunking a glowing basketball of ideas into a skyscraper. <laughs> and what I want to know, <laughs> and what I want to know is what happens if we all try to dunk our ideas in the hoop at the same time? It won't work. Physics won't allow it. Yeah, like there, there is an appeal to libertarianism, but then you ask them, okay, but like who maintains the roads? And they're like, well, we'll just like the market will do it. The market will handle it. And boy, I hope we never get to a point where that theory actually has to be tested. I feel like we are too close, close to it yeah. already. 
So what ha- you alluded to uh, some sort of case that Rourke gets involved in. What is so that? Let me about? give you the the arc of of Howard Rourke after this is is he does begin very slowly to get work and to get recognized, and he is he is offered a couple of of like multi floor buildings in New York City, and he is you know he seems like he's on his way up and he's doing it his own way. And people are recognizing the value in what he's doing and great. Things are going great. But Tui sets him up to take a fall. Like he, Tui talks to one of his adherents and tells him, okay, go to this guy, Howard Rourke. Tell him you want to make like a temple to all religions and that he is allowed to have like full creative control. And like, here's exactly what to say to him to appeal to, you know, his, his ego and and everything. So Howard takes the job. He's like, huh, this guy doesn't really seem like he totally buys the rationale for this thing that he's asking me to build, but okay, I'll do it. This thing's called the Stoddard Temple. Um, the Stoddard Temple is publicized, publicized, publicized. And then once it opens, Tui leads this charge to decry it as a blasphemy because it's, it's this like radically modern structure. It's got this like big statue of a naked woman in front of it. And it's supposed to be this like celebration of, of humanity Mm. and of man. And the book talks a lot about like the awe that you get when you look up at a skyscraper is like you being in awe of man and his achievements and the stuff he can do. Um, But Tui is saying like, this is, this is bad. This is against every religion. I can't believe that Howard, this guy Howard Rourke did this to my good buddy, huh. and isn't that awful? Yeah. And so all the work dries up for Howard after that, and he's he needs to take a job like on a quarry, like getting rocks out of the ground. Oh gosh. And this quarry just happens to be owned by Guy Franken or like related to Guy Franken in some way, and it's a place where Dominique goes sometimes for summers, and so that they meet there when Howard is working in a quarry and Dominique is summering and there is, I'm not going to, I'm definitely not going to get into the language of it. There is a, there is a sort of relationship that buds between them and they have a sexual encounter that is described in the book as rape a couple of times. Mm. And it's, I don't even want to say that it's a gray area, but like they do enter into a consensual relationship later. And also when it is happening, the book sort of implies that she is fine with what's happening, but she herself does later describe it as a rape. Yes. And so that's tough. And that's a controversy. I don't know if you had anything on that. Yeah, I did. So Rand reportedly, referred to the scene if it was rape it was rape by engraved invitation which i think is like both a literal and metaphorical comment she's making because i think there is some sort of like engraving thing that happens in the book right is that real so Wait, she like what? does she like carve something on rock or invite him in to engrave well, something? Yes, there, there's like a there's a marble mantelpiece in the house that she deliberately destroys to create a pretext to get him to okay. come into the house yeah. and replace the the marble with something else. Um, and so th- this was critiqued like the like f- 
famously in a book um, that Susan Brown Miller wrote called Against Our Will um, that was critical of not just Ayn Rand, but a whole like host of 20th century thought that was, um, you know, had rape culture kind of embedded in it and did not care for Rand's portrayal of women who were, you know, suffering humiliation at the hands of men. Um, and like people have wrestled with whether or not this is that because of their own feelings about the book and like a desire to have it not be rape makes it easier to take I think for folks well and obviously for a whole bunch of people like there there is fun and there is like sexual attraction in creating with a partner you trust a sense of yeah. not safety or like non-consent but it's like a consensual non-consent and so I could see where people talking about this could try and throw it into that gray area but it also gets very close to another gross gray area where it's like oh she wants it so it's fine that yes Mm -hmm. he did like actually she secretly wants this and so it's fine that it happened so the article i referenced earlier from the washington city paper was called internal affairs how ayn rand followers rationalize welcomed rape by amanda hess this was back in 2010 it opens with the recession has been good to ayn rand (laughs) some interesting way to start an article i found i found a lot of stuff about like the tea party movement and and ayn rand like specifically heard fears about what happens when the state gets too big because at that at that point democrat like obama had just won democrats had majorities in the house they had they very nearly had for a little while like a filibuster proof senate majority majority in the senate which means they could do stuff without having to consult with the other party at all um but for you non-us politics people i always want to add a little bit of context for people who who don't who aren't bathed in our dumb (laughs) system Um, but Hess's article is, is actually pretty good because it interviews a lot of people and particularly women who read the book when they were younger and talk about like their experience reading it. Um, and one said, like, I know that many view it as a rape scene. I definitely didn't see it that way when I was younger. There are elements of non-consensual consensual sex in that scene. I was aware of Dominique's feelings towards Rourke. And to me, she internally agreed to it, I guess, in a way that a lot of females, as you were saying, Andrew, enjoy um, rough sex and want domination behind closed doors end quote mm-hmm. um, but then others talk about like yeah I read that book in my teens when I hadn't really read anything like it and it was kind of titillating from a pornographic perspective but if I looked at it today I would hate it because it's rape like sure um, and anything that I read about the potential Snyder cut of this book um, was definitely like what are you going to do with this relationship that is really busted and definitely founded on a really awful sequence. I don't want to linger on this too long because it's understandably a super sensitive topic. And I also, you know, this is one of those places where I really don't want to get things like quote unquote wrong. Yeah, that's fair. You know what I mean? It comes up a lot when people are talking about Rand's body of work and whether or not the women in her books are like, like someone wrote us about Atlas Shrugged and was interested in like a proto-feminist character in that book. Um, and just talking about the characters, this this conversation is part of that scholarship. So I think that's worth bringing up and certainly as a as a warning for anybody going into this book. But yeah, I, I think we can 
kind of move on except to say that then this is a relationship that continues during Rourke's low point working in the quarry? Uh, not... Well, so, okay, they both go back to to New York City separately after this. Rourke because he does get work again and Dominique because she just lives in New York. Yeah. Um, When she, like, actually... So she doesn't know that Rourke is an architect. She doesn't know that he has done anything that she would know about. Um, But she does find this out and then she decides that she's going to do everything she can to like destroy his career and like basically teams up with Tui to do this. Okay. And I think this is anybody's motivations, especially in the second <laughs> half of the book. It's just, it's really hard to parse out, but I believe it is that she doesn't want to, like she knows that these buildings are like an extension of him and she doesn't want to like have him display himself. So like nakedly in front of just just anybody, like including people who aren't like worthy of him, because she wants him. Maybe yes, yeah. Again, I feel like we're encountering uh, limits of the philosophy in the limits <laughs> of the character's motivation. Okay, sure. Um. Okay, so then we meet Gail Wynand, and he's a newspaper boy. And we talked about Howard him. Become yes. friends and. And Howard's on the up and up again. Like H- Howard does a, a job for Wynand. Like the the Wynand papers start kind of talking him up a little bit. And but Tui also is like from his position as like an op ed columnist, basically at the Banner, undermining Wynand by over the course of many years recommending like adherence of his for different positions at the paper and like getting them hired and sort of pulling the rug out from under wine and a real bed bug, you might ends say. Up, like Dominique ends up deciding that she doesn't want to be with Howard or like Howard is, doesn't want to be with her. And so Dominique decides that she wants to punish herself. So first she marries Keating and then she marries Wynand, but then actually Wynand turns out to be like a not entirely terrible guy. And then Wynand, decides that he really likes Howard Rourke's architecture and hires him to build them a house. And that's when Howard and Dominique, just, they meet again. Okay. The, Oh, the, actually the, um, the incident that drives them apart in the first place is the, the soldered temple lawsuit where Rourke gets sued for this temple that he just built, got yeah. kind of tricked into to building and Dominique, like testifies sort of in his favor, sort of against him. I don't know. There's, there's, there's a lot of stuff that I read a while ago at this point. And so I'm a little foggy on it, but let's get to the, the final event in the book is Peter, Peter Keating pushing 40 years old is down and out. His firm is shrinking. His life's almost over. He's 40 years old. Well, no, I just, I just mean time has passed. Yeah. His yeah. Time, time has passed and his, time has come and gone because he was only ever leeching off of other people and didn't have anything to offer himself. And so once, especially once Tui decided that he had gotten what he needed out of Peter, that's kind of it for Peter Keating's career. Like he's seen as old fashioned. It's bad. There's this government housing project that they're trying to build and they have got like a specific dollar amount that they're trying to, you know, make units sell like rent for it's a it's ten dollars or fifteen dollars a month i think 
uh, which this is like 1930 something. Okay. Like during or just after the depression. So I don't know how that translates, but translates now. But anyway, they've got a specific dollar amount they want to hit. They've tried all kinds of architects and can't find somebody who can do it. And so Peter pulls strings with Tui and is like, Hey, I really, really need this. And Tui's like, fine, if you can bring me something that'll get the job done, like great, it's yours. So Peter goes to Howard and this is the first time the two of them have met in a long time. Howard is essentially unchanged. And meanwhile, Peter has aged visibly and is, is not Mm. doing so great. Um, Howard says, okay, this is, this is the way I can collaborate with you is the building gets built just as I want it. No weird surprises, no anything. And then you are the person who does like the people end of things and you get to put your name on it. You get to claim full credit for it. I don't care about that. I get to do the work and like express myself. And Peter in a moment, what is presented as a moment of lucidity is like, actually you're getting the better end of this idea of this deal. (laughs) And Howard is genuinely impressed that Peter can, can see that. Sure. From his, his like second hander point of view. (laughs) (laughs) So this is all, this is all going fine. And then Howard and Wynand decide they're going to go on like a yacht vacation for three months, just conveniently where Howard isn't going to work at all. Mm hmm. Because Howard's been working a lot. He's yeah, man. He's been getting a lot of work for the good work that he does. He's the ideal man. So he's he's working hard. And then, and then by the time Howard gets back, of course, other architects have gotten their hands on this building. And they've added superfluous stuff. And Peter, even though he tried honestly to to not let this happen, like his contract was not respected um, people were like, "Hey, come on! Like, what? Who are who are you to say that your vision is perfect and it can't be added to? Like, it's it's presented as this um, this ugly side of of collectivism where nobody is like nobody is held to account. Nobody isn't. It is no like it's nobody's responsibility to make sure this building gets done." because it's everybody's responsibility. And so there's like nowhere where the buck stops. And so what ends up happening is this monstrosity and Howard decides, I don't want to see my work like defaced like this. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to blow the building up. And so he literally blows the building up. And there's a big lawsuit about this. There, there's this whole sequence where um, this is where Winant discovers the limits of his powers, powers over yeah. public opinion. And also that Tui has also eaten the paper out from under him um, because he tries to defend his friend Howard and can't like a, uni- a newly formed union Uh-oh. strikes. And there's a strike going on for two months and circulation is going down and the, the board of of people's like, Hey, we have to compromise with this union. And so wine and finally snaps and, and relents. And this is his, this is where he's different from Howard Rourke. who never, ever, never compromises. Yeah. No compromise. Never. Surrender. He never sold out galaxy quest. Never <laughs> give up. Never surrender. There is, um, there is a version of Howard, Howard Rourke That is the indie 
musician who never sold out, right? Like he is like he never signed a big la- like big label deal. He's, he's he's like the neutral milk hotel guy or something. Yeah, and he's the just guy from out Beat there happening. <laughs> and he just like won't compromise in his vision. Whereas like you know, mm-hmm. you listen you listen to Paul McCartney and like Wings, and you're just like, hmm, interesting. Made a lot of money, <laughs> huh? Is, is Paul McCartney and Wings. <laughs> Um, what I'm saying is John Lennon is Howard Rourke and Paul McCartney is Peter Keating. That's fine. I don't know. John Lennon did some stinkos <laughs> also. Maybe Ringo is the Howard Rourke. He's uncompromising. No, Ringo is collectivism because he had <laughs> that big album that he did after the Beatles broke up. Like They all played on individually and like wrote songs for him, but they didn't all appear on the same track. So yeah, uh-huh. Ringo and his all-star band are actually avatars of collectivism okay this is good i like this yeah <laughs> anywho he bombs ayn rand and the, the beatles <laughs> a new book coming to amazon self-published by yes. andrew cunningham and craig getting um but so he bombs this thing he gets in trouble he bombs this thing he gets in trouble and then the end of the book is this big scene where he talks about individualism and how it's great and he moves the jury so much that they acquit him really yeah so it's not even like a tragedy of like society bringing this man down he does no he try he triumphs it's like in rock because every because every man even even the lowest man even even your peter keatings occasionally has this like flash of knowledge where they they understand what it could be like to be an individual. It's like how Rocky Rocky won the Cold War in Rocky Four by punching a big blonde man and then like speaking passionately to a crowd of Soviets. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Or is it? Or is it? If you put so your that's mind the end. to it, the uh, Howard gets Dominique. Does he? And Gail mm. Winans like last meeting with Howard because he's so ashamed of the thing that he did is to give Howard this commission for the Winand building, Mm. which is going to be positioned on a bit of hell's kitchen where Winand like came up from. It's going to be the tallest skyscraper in New York city. So he wins the last skyscraper anyone builds in New York city. So he he wins the girl. He wins the building. Hmm. So as we close, Andrew, I want to know two things. Why? we've talked a little bit about this, but now that we've gone through the plot, like what in there do you think really kind of set Rand up to go on this objectivist journey and why it appealed to people? And then why do so many people maybe bounce off this book? We got a lot of notes from folks who are just like, man, I tried. No, thanks. Or, Oh, can't wait to hear what you have to say about this one in a way that clearly communicates that they did not like this book. I mean, it's a, just to, to get to the most basic level, like it's extremely long and okay. self-righteous. And so I could see how <laughs> if you are looking for that, it is it is that. Great. And if you're not looking for that, well, that's too bad because it's still that. It's still that. Okay. Um, but just to... So here is an idea. Uh-oh. Here, here is a thing. Here is something that Howard Rourke is talking about. Um. He's talking about the government housing projects and what they and and how he doesn't like have anything against the poor, basically. But like here, I don't know. Let let, let me just read it and let the book speak for itself. Um, 
Nobody can afford a modern apartment except the very rich and the paupers. Have you seen the converted brownstones in which the average self-supporting couple has to live? Have you seen their closet kitchens and their plumbing? They're forced to live like that because they're not incompetent enough. They make $40 a week and wouldn't be allowed into a housing project. But they're the ones who provide the money for the damn project. They pay the taxes and the taxes raise their own rent. And they have to move from a converted brownstone into an unconverted one and from that into a railroad flat. I'd have no desire to penalize a man because he's worth only $15 a week, but I'll be damned if I can see why a man worth 40 must be penalized and penalized in favor of the one who's less competent. Mm. Um, so I could see either side of, of that. Like com- coming to it as a youngish reader. Yeah. I can see you like like a reader like not nodding along with that and being like yeah like you know people get all these handouts and and maybe we should all just be we should all just get stuff based on how hard we try and how much we contribute and that's especially that that's a very american sort of sentiment is like it's it's the dark side of the american dream thing where anybody can pull themselves up by their bootstraps where it, it then follows like the unspoken second part of that is anyone who does not appear to have been pulled up by their bootstraps just doesn't want it enough. Yes, correct. And so this, this speech of, but, but on the other side of that, this, this speech of Rourke's assumes that there are absolutely no external systems, correct. no systemic anything. There is no reason why one person would make $15 a week and another person would make $40 a week except for their own innate ability and their own like worth mm-hmm. and competence. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. It has nothing to do with the accessibility of a good job or the accessibility of a good school or food or whatever or whether or not whoever you are has been determined by people in power to be less than good um and you have been redlined out of a neighborhood or whatever it might be yeah it just yeah. doesn't it doesn't stand up to scrutiny for me when you actually look at like what people have done specifically in this country even like apply it to specifically american communities and politics it just doesn't seem to line up but i see the nugget of truth in that which is like why not why not help the person who is having trouble affording the thing that they have too like yeah why not it's it's like she she is interested in a in a way she is interested in a more just society but it all that also is being like rested on assumptions that I don't think hold up to literally any scrutiny yeah. at all. Yeah. Um and and that's I think that's why it would capture younger people more because it's it's the kind of thing that sounds really good and really like common sense mm. until you think about it. <laughs> from <laughs> like just it's like from the from the perspective of someone with more lived experience or different lived experience, like just if, if you are like a middle-class white kid, like I was back when I was 16, 17, like, yeah, I, I could, you know, my experience of the world has been one where most people seem to be on even footing because everyone around me is white and that's just like we all yep. none of us have to deal with any particular handicaps because we all have the same 
background, but do you know what I'm saying? No, like, I know exactly I, I what know. you're saying. And especially because it's also the people getting ahead in this book are like white dudes also in particular. Yeah. Um, but it, it just, it, mm, yeah, it is just, but for the people with the opportunity to take advantage of it. Um, and it just strikes me that there's not, by the nature of it being a story that has to be told, like there can only be one Howard Rourke in the book for her to make her point. But that to me highlights a problem in the philosophy. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it relies on individual movers and like we're not out here on our own. We're not. It's just a it's... book, a book full of Howard Rourke's would be. Oh, I mean, there is, there is already a really long stretch where, Howard and Wynand are ostensibly having a conversation between the two of them that reads exactly <laughs> like one long monologue because it is two people with the same viewpoint agreeing with each other sure. for 15 pages. And, so, I, and yeah. oh, back to what you said about it appealing to younger readers like or teenage readers, idealistic readers. I can also see it appealing to it, it can calcify and become a resentment of like I did work for what little stuff I do have. Um and it, it appeals to that sense also, right? Yeah, that that that's part of what drives the secondhanders' hatred yeah. of the individualist is they see they see true greatness, they evaluate themselves next to it and find themselves wanting, and their reaction to it is to not to aspire to something better themselves, but to tear the other person down. Hmm. Is the le- the lesson of the book, I guess. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so like I think we did a good job of interrogating not... why this book became the the book like that it has gone on to be. I think yeah. we did a good job. And and it is not she is not a bad writer, I don't think. Most okay. of the time. Most of the time. I mean, she she has a thing she is setting out to do, and that makes the book very long and very repetitive in spots. But also, she does. I think Keating's sort of tragic arc is my honestly my favorite because he comes the closest to being a person. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. I guess out he's of, a, out of he's everyone, a human. And, yeah, yeah, and it's really it his downfall is is portrayed as very gradual but also like very inevitable mm. mm-hmm. and it's i don't know it, it is a it's like he he could maybe had he taken a couple of different paths have sort of escaped this fate that he finds himself in it, where he testifies at this trial for howard blowing up the building and rand says you know he was supposed to be a blockbuster witness but he has so little presence like after he leaves, it's as if no one at all had spoken because that's that oh, that is Keating is like Mr. his his self cellophane they yeah, call his, me cellophane. <laughs> his self is defined by um <laughs> by how other people see him, and if other people don't see him and aren't impressed by him, then he doesn't. It's like he doesn't exist. It honestly, it just sounds like it would be really easy to see yourself if you're honestly reading this book. You'd find versions of yourself in Keating but if you read this book and you just see Howard like you see yourself in Howard Rourke I don't trust you please don't well that's that's another um 
there is a it's it's that same Guardian yep. uh, article that I that I referenced earlier actually that talks about the two big groups of people who are influenced by Ayn Rand and her philosophy is American conservatives and Silicon Valley tech bros. And so they it is a it is a field of dudes who believe themselves to be Howard Rourke's and look at how that's going that's for everyone. Not going great. Okay. That's the fountainhead, everybody. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, you're welcome. I hope you all wanted a bunch of politics stuff. Was there- I, sometimes, I know people come to this to escape politics sometimes, and I'm happy to give people that escape to an extent, but there's really no avoiding no. talking about it in this because we are... If you are an American today, you are like surrounded by what became of this philosophy, it's and there's like no, there's no avoiding me. it. Yeah, the, this what what is it? They did some stu- They did some survey in the early 1990s of like the Library of Congress, being like, "What is the most like important book in your life?" And number one was the Bible, and number two was Atlas Shrugged. And I was like, "Oh, this is a cool country I live in." More like more like Andrew shrugs. Yeah. <laughs> Way to burn a joke for maybe a podcast. I hope we never have to record. <laughs> um, thank you for listening, everyone at home. Tell us what uh, shiny basketball of ideas you would slam dunk by writing us an email at overduepod at gmail.com or tweet, tweeting us or writing to us on Facebook, wonderful Silicon Valley products um, at overduepod. Uh, thanks to Steve, Leanne, Jennifer, Sal, Layla, Tim, Charlene, Brittany, Michelle, Jen, Ronnie, Amanda, Gloria, many more for reaching out and making us feel good throughout the week. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there we have links to the books that we have read and are going to read. We have old episodes. We have episodes that we think are good for new listeners. We have a link to our Patreon page if you want to give us some money. At this point, I'm just going to say that if you get on Patreon and you recognize, you recommend that we read Atlas Shrugged, we are going to ask you for another book. Yeah, I think that's I just fair. Don't, I don't see the point in doing this episode again. But, uh, you know, give me some space from the fountainhead <laughs> and maybe I'll feel differently. I don't know. Um, um, next week, I think, will be The Secret River by Kate Grenville with uh, my lovely wife, Laura, guesting on the show. Um, we should have the will rest. Will I be on that one? No. You, the, no. The specific plan was to keep you off that one so you could take okay. care of your son. Fine, I can't be on my own podcast anymore. Jeez. No. That's why we did it. Um, and then we'll have the rest of the December schedule coming out soon. Um, so folks can keep an eye out for that. That's it. All right, everybody, all you second-handers out there, until we talk to you next week, please try to be happy. That was a headgum podcast. Can we get you a chair or some WD? Can the show buy you WD forty for your chair? I've got WD forty. Can you put it on that chair, please?
Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast no, about some... No, that can't be the intro. <laughs> We've already talked about the squeaky chair in the intro. <laughs>